it's like a joke in our family. We're like, oh, we're 20 minutes into dinner and Morgan hasn't brought up poop. Hello, everyone. Today, I am super excited to be sitting down with the world-renowned genetics professor, Dr. Tim Spector. He's published more than 900 research articles and famous for his work studying twins, genetics, the microbiome, and diet. Most recently, he's co-founded the Zoe Nutrition Company, an app that brings together blood sugar, blood fat, and microbiome information. They are also the company behind the famous Blue Poop Challenge, which we're going to learn more about today. And they recently introduced an award-winning COVID symptom study app that allows millions of users to share their daily symptoms to help us learn more about COVID-19 and its differences from the common cold or the flu. Within 24 hours, this app was downloaded over a million times, so we can't wait to hear um, how he achieved such success with that. We're going to talk about the impact of the microbiome, the groundbreaking work the Zoe team is doing on bringing that information into your living room. Tim has written three books, uh, Spoon Fed, Identically Different, and his most popular, The Diet Myth. Before we talk poop, COVID, microbiome, and twins, a quick reminder, any and all opinions and views shared by hosts and guests on this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the view of Primal Kitchen or its affiliates or parent company. Woo. Hello, Tim. Hello. Hello. Finally, good to talk. Yeah, I know. I was joking with Tim before this that just the research alone it took to write his um, intro was exhausting for me. So I'm thrilled to have Tim here. He's someone I've been most excited to talk to for all the reasons mentioned above. So let's get into it. So Tim, you are famous for your study on twins. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I've been studying twins for about 30 years now. And this started as a small project and ended up as 14,000 twins all across the UK and who have been studied more detail than any other sets of twins in the world. And really, the first 10 years of my career was really finding which elements of being a twin were genetic and which uh, were due to the environment. And so back when I started in the 90s, we thought a lot of everything was just general wear and tear and aging and, uh, you know, only rare diseases were thought to be genetic. And so a lot of it was introducing people to the idea that genes were really important in, in common diseases and the fact that back pain was three times more genetic than breast cancer, you know, uh, was the sort of thing I, w- I was doing. And then I got, uh, and we obviously discovered hundreds of genes on the way and, you know, pioneered some of the early genetic testing and things like that because twins were this ideal group. And uh, in the UK, they've just been amazingly altruistic. They all do it for free and they come in for like an annual checkup and things. So it, it's been great fun. And it's a way I, you know, I started life as a rheumatologist, but very quickly, I, I just learned to get excited in all, all areas of um, biology and medicine because we had the same method. You know, by studying twins, you could take pairs of identical twins and pairs of uh, non-identical twins and look at the differences between them. And if there was more similar in the identical twins compared to the non-identical, you say, wow, that's genetic. And, uh, there's, you know, it can't be anything else. And th- that was really fantastically fun for the first sort of 10, 15 years. Then we found lots of genes. Then I started getting more interested in why identical twins were often different. And, you know, we look at identical twins and they have exactly the same expressions on the face and the public go, wow, they're amazing. Um, and they pick up a teacup or a beer with the same fingers and uh, have the same laughs and expressions. But 
more seriously, they, they die of different diseases, they get different cancers, they get of different autoimmune diseases. And so they're much more different than people uh, think. And that led to me thinking, well, why is that? Because they have identical genes in every cell in their body. What else might be different? And I, I looked at something called epigenetics, which some of the listeners might know about, which is how you can you have chemical signals which can slightly alter your genes and that can tweak what's going on. But I realized that wasn't a major factor. It was, uh, it was only when we got into looking at their gut microbes through poo samples that we saw that's where the big difference was. And in a way, that change about 12 years ago really shifted my whole research idea to thinking that if if the one thing that's most different about identical twins that are different for, say, obesity, weight, or depression, or um, diabetes, then this could be the key to unlocking why all of us, you know, vary in ways much more than just our genes. And so that really got me into this whole area of nutrition and the microbiome and started me writing books and, you know, becoming uh, a really a microbiome center and focusing the twin work on that. And that's that's really what's driven me. But each time you want to look at something, uh, anything from nutrition to religion to politics to uh, sexuality uh, or you can look in twins and get a really good idea of what's going on and what drives that particular thing you're looking at. So it's been a fantastic tool. I've been incredibly lucky in my career to uh, to have that, which means I can sort of study pretty much anything I want that's common. And that, that's a, a unique thing for a scientist to have. So cool. Okay, so you have to unload that a little bit for us here. So you just mentioned, you know, all the things we're not supposed to talk about, sexuality, politics, religion, how did, how did that come into the twin study? Because I love talking about things we're not supposed to talk about. So this is this is my favorite. I'm always, I'm always interested in being slightly you know, out there and controversial and, and upsetting people about their prejudices. And so I'm always keen to study things that no one else wants to study. So as you can imagine, um, sex, politics and religion are sort of the, <laughs> you don't get much better than that. So um some of this was to get publicity for the twins, so we'd get more people recruited. Uh, other times it was just to work in an area where no one, no research is done. So like sexuality, we looked at the genetics of heterosexuality, homosexuality, um, found that both in men and women there was a, there was a genetic component. And we also looked at um, uh, libido, and uh, number of sexual partners and found that was also genetic. Uh, and we actually f- um, even looked at things like the female orgasm, which we're not supposed to talk about either, but um, and uh, found that there was, uh, there was no, we couldn't find any genes for that, uh, which is interesting. So, so the female orgasm still remains a mystery. Yes, very much. But... <laughs> <laughs> and it, but we did get some amazing data on how much it varied between uh, you know people, so um, uh, huge variations. Um, so it, it remains a mystery. 
Yeah, yes, of course. So this group of listeners has done stuff like, you know, like I downloaded my raw data from 23andMe years ago before they stopped interpreting data for you on 23andMe and then uploaded it to the Sterling Report or put it into Rhonda Patrick's, you know, found my fitness thing. So are there actually like genetic SMPs that are like, like how does this show up to where you could predict someone's sexuality, for instance? Well, in a way, uh, all the... All, my, all the findings we're looking at in common traits like sexuality or um, even things like conservative views, you know, whether you vote Republican or Democrat or, um, or um, you're, whether you believe in God, um, come down to seeing that there are genes involved in it. But we can't define, uh, we can usually find a few gene markers that are associated with it, but we never get close enough to be able to predict uh, with more than fifty, you know, more than fifty-one percent versus forty-nine percent exactly what's going on. And in a way, that's the that's the problem of twenty-three and Me, and the problem of uh, common disease genetics is that we don't have that knockout single gene because there's so many genes involved. We're much more complicated as human beings than we've been led to believe, and so. In a way, that was a bit of a fallacy of the genetic era, which I was a part of. So, I, you know, I'm partly to blame, thinking that we could explain all these diseases with a, sim- a single gene marker or whatever. And that's a lot of these genetic testing companies. That's what they are still offering. They're trying to really con people to think, you know, it's like you can understand your diet just by doing a few gene tests. Well, you know, that's as ridiculous as saying, just by doing this, we can understand cancer or depression or, um, you know, your, whether you're going to gain weight or not or, you know, uh, or what, how, which way you're going to vote in the next election. So, um, so there's a real big difference at the moment between understanding that something has a genetic basis or an environmental basis or a, a family basis to actually saying you can predict it with our genetic material. And that's, that's, that's in a way why I've, I'm moving away from genetics in my career and, and science and, and moving towards things that I think are more actionable. And that's why I've got really interested in, in the gut microbes. And suddenly, the, you know, the fact that you can, they are, you know, predictive of health. And the nice thing is you can change them with diet and lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's segue into that then. So that led you to your work with Zoe, correct? Yeah. So, um, so once once I worked out the microbes are important, I started obviously publishing stuff on this and doing big twin studies. And I was giving a t- I was giving a talk uh, on my book, The Diet Myth, and two guys in the audience um, came to see me after and said, "We love what you're doing. You know, we'd like to fund you to start a company that could use the microbes plus this new idea." of nutrition in a personalized way, uh, you know, using big data. And I said, uh, you know, I'm only interested if you're really going to fund proper research and this is going to cost you millions of dollars and thought I'd never see them again. But they came back two weeks later, said, yeah, we've got some seed money. We're happy to, to spend the money on real research first, whereas most companies just spend the money on marketing. And uh, that, to me, was the reason why I said, well, I can combine doing real science, progressing, you know, things forward, and at the same time have an objective at the end 
in a few years' time of having a commercial product that might help people's lives. So to me, that was more interesting than writing yet another academic paper, um, you know, my thousandth paper, which no longer had the same excitement. And so I wanted to do something with all this, make something practical out of all this massive information that's coming out of genes and microbes and uh, glucose monitors and uh, and fat levels and things, which, you know, this this really exciting new technology. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so, so we got, so we got Zoe together and then did, spent three years really doing these PREDICT studies, which, uh, you know, the world's largest nutrition intervention studies um, to really get the baseline data to, to base uh, products on rather than just taking it from other people's studies, which is what traditionally uh, companies in this space do, with the exception maybe of, you know, 23andMe, but in a way that they started that way as well. Yeah. Okay. So what's a PREDICT study? So the PREDICT study is uh, a massive scale intervention study where you take normal people and feed them a range of identical meals and see how they respond to that food. The old idea was that everyone responded the same way, uh, maybe males and females slightly differently, but otherwise, you know, one size fits all. And so we gave people standard meals, uh, set muffins, and told them to eat it for breakfast at particular times and asked them to log all their food for two weeks. And we gave them continuous glucose monitors. We gave them um, uh, blood prick testing for blood fats. And we looked at inflammation levels. And we asked them to log how they felt uh, before and after every meal in terms of hunger and energy levels, etc. And then we took our microbe samples at the beginning and end of that test. And we did this in uh, you know, samples that no one else has, has done on that scale before. So over a thousand people in the UK and uh, in the US uh, involving my hospital at King's and um, Mass General in Boston. And basically we got these amazing results that we weren't expecting that you get identical meals to people and there's an eightfold difference in the blood responses to that food in normal people. And that really was a, a real aha moment to say, well, that's huge variability. You know, if we can, met, if we can predict that uh, and, and tell people what type of person they are, you know, this is, this is going to be huge in terms of intervention. And then the second big insight was that we, we had over 600 I, I, twins in the group. And so we found even identical twins had very different responses to food. And no one's ever looked at that before. So, and we published this, you know, not in just some PR blog, but in Nature Medicine, which is one of the top journals in the world. Uh, because, you know, the ethos of the company is very much to get the science first and and, and uh, sp- spread the word. Also, you know, making sure that people do believe the results are, are based on real science, uh, not just uh, marketing. And so that was the essence of that very first study. And then that is just the very start. And that was um, three years ago uh, now, I think. Uh, and then the second publication we did was looking at the gut microbes of those same people. And there was a clear link between 
the composition of the microbes and the responses to foods. And we can put those together and predict, based on those set meals, we can predict how people respond to any particular food uh, with about 80% uh, certainty, uh, which is pretty good going for any predictive test. And we also found that we could start to identify good and bad bugs that were associated with certain foods. And so we have 30 bugs that are really quite common to most people. And we can work out for any individual which foods will boost those bugs and the good ones and suppress the bad ones. So the more data we get, the better our predictions are becoming. And we've now got data on over uh, 10,000 people, and it's sort of doubling every three months. So it's it's a really exciting science project that's also having practical implications because um, we now have, uh, for the, you know, the last six months, we've had a product in the US that's based on this data and is also uh, providing us with more data. So we're getting better and better predictions, and we're continually improving the algorithms and uh, what we're doing because the idea, and I think you've you've had a go at this, but you haven't had your results yet. Um, uh, for the for the product, is you, you you get a score for your all your foods based on your response to sugars, your response to fat, and your gut microbiome, and it's it's that more holistic approach to food that. Uh, is 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 the is what we've taken from the studies so there isn't just one thing that affects it it, it you know you've got to you've got to try and put all these things in plus you know lifestyle factors are important exercise sleep um you know and being male or female your age all these things are also important in how you uh, metabolize food and that's what we're putting into this so it's really a big data approach that's um, super exciting, and we're, you know we're making discoveries uh, every week on this uh, because no one has has really looked. Everyone's always been looked at blood tests in in um, fasting levels in the morning. You know, you go to your doctors; they just take your your cholesterol, your 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 sugars. Everything is that you must be fasting, and everyone's actually very similar. And it's only when you you stimulate it that actually you see these really huge differences between people. And so um, the idea that is, and I think this is when we started, it's actually become more ingrained in mainstream uh, medicine now is that these sugar peaks, these fat peaks in your body, uh, all, all cause uh, inflammation. And that inflammation is a chronic stress on your body. And so if you can reduce these, Short-term stress is you reduce the long-term stress, but uh, and that's going to help metabolism, weight loss, all kinds of other stuff. And and um, but it's been really fa- fascinating because we've seen some twins that respond well to fats, and others, you know, and the other twin will respond well to sugars. And, and so it's really showing that one size fits all diets just don't work. And I think that's the not even talking about that's, and that and it's starting to fit in with some of the, the clinical trials now where you know you don't see clear differences between high fat diets and and high carb diets uh, because there's individual variation 
you know, some people, which, you know, you probably know that, you know, some people keto diets really suit and others that just can't hack it and they feel terrible. And it, it's probably related to how all of us respond differently to food. So I think this whole idea of personalized nutrition is, you know, it, it's it's inevitably going to be mainstream. Um, and, uh, we, you know, the idea there'll be this one, these guidelines for everybody about what percentage of fat or sugars, you know, is clearly nonsense. And everyone's going to have to start doing their own form of experiments to work out uh, what suits them. For sure. And I'm like one of those experimenters, right? So I've been super low carb. I was pescatarian. I was vegetarian when I got my yoga certification in Hawaii. I've been keto, the whole thing, right? Um, and this is probably why this war between vegans and paleo folks rages on because you've got you've got data to support both diets in some sense, right? So it's so interesting. But I think for me, I've done, you know, levels. I've done U-biome, testing my microbes. I, my functional medicine doctor did a stool test, I don't know, in January. I just sent in my samples for you guys last week. I'd be very curious to hear how that goes. But I think, you know, we're, anyone who's super interested in their health is on this this quest to find the right diet for them, right? I mean, that's the ultimate goal. And so it sounds like what you guys are doing is really taking in multiple inputs to provide that information to the user so we can more easily determine what is the right diet for us. Am I correct there? Yeah, that's absolutely the goal. Yeah, it, it's we think everyone has the right to, you know, to work out what's what diet is right for their particular biology. And it and it's, you know, it's not and it's not only the foods you eat, but it's also, you know, we're moving towards um, working out, you know, how you eat, you know, how many times a day you eat, um, whether, you know, how long your overnight fast is. Uh, and, and we think everyone's going to be different on this. You know, we've got, this is all our preliminary data is showing that, you know, there are some people like myself that metabolize food better in the evenings, right? Uh, whereas most people metabolize it better in the mornings. Um, so that would be shown as what, less of a glucose spike for instance yes. or how would you yeah so that? i did yeah. some experiments where i was eating these uh these zoe muffins and you know every four hours and it turned out that um uh, you know most most people uh were, were getting a, a a higher spike as the day went on but i i, I mine went down so actually i'm actually I'm like you as but well. We're, we're, we're the minority, you know, so uh, it's... Yeah, ice cream for dinner and I'm fine. But in the morning I have fruit and I'm like through the roof. Yeah, so, you know, and that that led me to question whether really I should be, you know, having quite as much breakfast. And so, you know, two or three times a week I now skip breakfast and use that to have an overnight fast. So I think, um, you know, some people instinctively know what's good for them, but... I think with this new technology and these tests, you can actually see for yourself, quantify it. And I think it's, it's you know, this is really exciting stuff as we're, you know, we're heading towards these really new areas, but we're un unraveling it much faster than the, the decades it's taken nutrition to get, you know, where we are at the moment. It's it's going at warp speed and it's, it, it's super exciting. So I'm learning, you know, I've learned so much about myself just by, uh, doing these tests and looking at, you know, the results we're seeing and, and trying to work out, you know, so I've upped my fat levels. I've, 
completely changed what I used to eat in the hospital for lunch. Um, you know, and I, and I realized. What did you what are you eating now versus what did you used to eat? Well, my my 10 years ago, my breakfast used to be a sort of muesli granola, healthy mix um, with some yeah. low fat milk and uh, an orange juice and um, uh, and some tea. And now it's high fat yogurt, uh, mixed nuts, seeds and some berries with a black coffee. And, you know, not only does that help my glucose scores, but my, my lipid scores don't go up and um, my uh, and I have I don't get hungry, um, you know, four hours later and because I don't get a sugar dip. Uh, and so that's one example. But my ho- I used to have a lunch in the hospital every day with a, a brown tuna sandwich and, and sweet corn uh, with some potato chips and maybe a, a small Tropicana. And, you know, that when I saw what I, I put a glucose monitor as I had that meal, and, uh, you know, I was way into the diabetic range. You know, it was, like, terrible. Um, and so now it's, you know, it would be um, plant-based salads, um, you know, things that aren't going to give me a sugar spike uh lots of nuts and seeds apples pears for lunch uh and, and you know i generally have a light lunch and then my main meal is in the evening and i i mainly i mainly plant-based i have uh i have meat uh once or twice a month uh just for my b12 levels and because i have a problem with meat on the environmental basis more than the health basis um now. Right. Um, and I and I found it suits me. Uh, you know, as I wrote in the the diet myth and and spoon fed, you know, there's nothing wrong with meat per se if it's good quality, and you don't have masses of amounts of it. Most people, but um, I I uh, it it doesn't always leave room for the on the plate for plants. <laughs> so it's a sort of it it's it, you know it's moving away from this all or nothing idea, and it's trying to work out well instead of what. Yeah, so meat instead of potatoes or or fries, great. But if it's instead of a variety of plants and nuts and seeds, well, maybe not, because that is uh, so. But all this stuff is evolving, and you know my diet is still evolving. I'm not, you know, I don't think I have yet the optimum diet for myself. And uh, you know, like you, I'm I'm, I'm still experimenting. So. Uh, uh, it's 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 a it's a journey, and it, and it's going to change at different ages as well. You know, there isn't necessarily one diet for everyone at all, all times of life. I think we have to realize that. Uh, and yeah. yeah, I agree. I noticed that pregnant and breastfeeding, I needed very different things than I needed when you know I wasn't pregnant or breastfeeding. Meat was one. I had a really hard time. I was very anemic. Like I remember my OBGYN told me, you are profoundly anemic. And I was taking all these iron supplements. I could not get I could not get my levels up until I just started eating red meat multiple times a week, which wasn't something I was doing previously. But very quickly, I turned it around. So I can definitely relate there. Do you think um, like being plant-based is something that is specific to a certain genetic, like a certain type of diet? Are there like different profiles you have within the cohorts in the Zoe app? Or do you feel like um, that's more of a universal thing? Well, I think 
if you look at all the epidemiology studies, I don't think we've got enough data yet from I- extreme groups in, in the, um, you know, ex- extreme vegans against extreme carnivores to really compare them with the Zoe program yet. We'd love to have them, so please do join up. <laughs> but um, look at the epidemiology studies of, of vegans and, uh, and carnivores. Um, you know, it's looking like the health benefit is not necessarily any any different between uh, someone who has meat like myself two or three times a month or, you know, once a week and and uh, a total vegetarian. Um, it, it's probably more about what else you put on your plate the rest of the time. So it's more about the complete meal rather than focusing on these one items as good or bad. And I think this is um, this is really where you know, I'm moving to in, in my mindset is we're fixated on single items to try and simplify nutrition. And it's much more complex than that. You know, meat, you know, meat has carbs in it, you know, um, uh, and everything's a mixture. And so, and all carbs are not the same, you know, and yet we try and oversimplify everything and dumb it down when talking about calories and, uh, you know, it, it's, for me, it's all about, you know, if, the simple way to say is what's the best thing for your gut microbiome? And this, to me, is really important long term because there are lots of diets that may work short term, but long term, your health is really important. And, and, and virtually all the studies show that a diversity of plants is what's important for your uh, long term gut health. And we did a study with uh, with the American Gut Project, we had the British Gut Project together with it combined forces, and we found that when we looked at eleven thousand people, the people who had the best gut health uh, measured by microbes were people who were eating thirty different types of plant a week. And it didn't matter if you had fish, you had meat uh, on top of it. Uh, that's that was the the key metric uh, in a way, and. Um, so I think that that's really important is that, you know, I know a lot of your listeners are really big into meat, but it doesn't mean you can't have a diversity of other things, even if it's in small amounts, because that's what we're learning here is it's not about necessarily the quantities. It's, it's you know, if you think of your gut microbiome like a, a garden, uh, it's sprinkling on a little bit of fertilizer. It's not smothering it with nitrogen. It's, you know, putting different amounts of lots of different seeds out there and sprinkling them on, you know, just on your salad, just sprinkling some nuts and seeds and herbs and spices and things like this, that it's, it's getting a different mental state. It doesn't mean having uh, had to have a, you know, a giant glass of kale smoothie every day, um, which, you know, is what most people think of of veganism. Um, So I think it's, if you think of it from a micro point of view, um, I think that if they only eat meat, um, they wouldn't be so happy. And, you know, I've spent time in East Africa with some of these hunter-gatherers. And, yeah, they eat a lot of meat, but they also eat a lot of variety of different meats. Um, you know, hundreds of different species they'll be eating. Uh, they also eat a lot of dirt every time they eat their meat. <laughs> and it's a lot, they don't wash it a lot. They stick it straight on the, on the fire eat it with their hands, bits of fur in it and things like this. Um, I'm not recommending that, but I'm just saying that's what they do. And um, 
But, you know, they're eating enormous amounts of nuts and berries and seeds uh, and tubers and uh, getting, you know, three times the, the American average of fiber every day. So that, that, and that combination works very well for them. They just don't get, you know, uh, common diseases. So I think, you know, to me, the sweet spot of, of nutrition is somewhere between these, these extremes. There might be some people who really do well on these extremes. Most people are going to find themselves somewhere on the spectrum. And you've got to work out what the, what the common denominators are of the healthy groups around, around, around the world um, as a basis. And then on top of that, personalize it, um, you know, f- for you and your particular circumstances. Yeah. So Zoe will tell me what, what my microbiome diversity looks like. That's what I'm, what I'm hearing, right? Yeah, but it's not, it's, like it's not focusing on that uniquely. So it's saying, um, yeah, of course, it, yeah, but that, that's one part of it. And it'll, it'll give you advice about which foods uh, to eat to boost the good guys and suppress the bad guys. So we've got these 30 microbes that we've, we've isolated that pretty much work in everybody. And you want to get that balance of the good guys and the bad guys. And this is particularly interesting for, for big meat eaters because there are some meat eaters that um, have a set of microbes that converts the meats to some uh, harmful chemicals. This whole idea, they're called TM, TMAO, is the, uh, the chemical. Whereas others uh, have the right mic- a different set of microbes that don't convert the meat cholines and proteins to this harmful chemical and then the theory is they never get any heart disease consequences. So again, in the future, I think we'll be looking at how we can maybe personalize people who can eat a lot of meat quite safely and others that might end up having problems or might need to change their microbes, or you might be able to buy a a special probiotic pack in the future that would tweak your microbes so that they uh, don't produce this this chemical um, side effect, if you like. So it, it's really interesting. But I think at the moment, uh, my view for, you know, for meat eaters is, yeah, by all means, carry on eating your meat, but do look to try and uh, you know, do all the things you do to keep your gut microbiome going because that, that's the thing that's going to look after you long term, good for your immunity, fighting COVID, you know, staying slimmer, um, fighting cancer, all these kind of things uh, that are, are important. So. I think we need to just, you know, and we're just finding our way here about what that balance is and things like, you know, not only the variety of foods, but also things like fermented foods. Um, you know, I, you know, whether you're into dairy or not, you know, there, are, there is now a fermented food for nearly everybody, whether it's yogurt, kefir, kombucha, kimchi, uh, the, you know, these the four Ks, uh, kraut. Um, these are all extra things. And then, of course, if you are going to pick, if you want to plants, I will say go for the pick. Try and understand more about food and understand what the good things on food are. So, take an iceberg lettuce, for example, has no nutrients at all, nothing. Completely, its only good thing is it lasts in your fridge for three weeks without going rotten. You know. Um, but you know, pick brightly colored vegetables that have 
polyphenol chemicals in them that, that are good for your microbes. So thick berries, brightly colored things as well, you know, and you probably don't need to have a lot of them. It's just that more that diversity that's important. So these, these are some of the things where we're learning and we're trying to incorporate this into this, um, this advice that we're giving people. So there's obviously some generic advice and there's also this, this highly personalized one, which at the moment is relating more about how you respond to fats, how you respond to carbs. How do you get that right balance? You know, um, uh, you know what's, what's the th- your threshold for, e- for eating fats that you might want to avoid? Um, and I have a particular problem with my fat levels. Uh, I, I have, when I test for, for Zoe, I have very good microbiome scores. I have very bad sugar scores and bad fat scores. Right? So uh, I'm sort of um, always trying on a bit of a tightrope to say uh, what I can do. But obviously, I'm just trying to eat mainly fat, but just keep below a certain threshold because what I don't want is at six hours to have really high fat levels in my blood, which will uh, trigger inflammation. So it's trying to work out for yourself how how you do that uh, while still enjoying food. So let's not forget that one of the great pressures in life is food and we mustn't uh, get too obsessed with it. Um, You know, a tasty whole food, you know, is always going to be good. And that's why, you know, I never have low fat, low carb, low calorie, anything anymore. Nothing with artificial sweeteners. Yeah. Mark, our founder always says there's so few pleasures left in life, food and sex being two of of them. So I'm all, I'm all for that. Um, making sure that it's still pleasurable, but I'm also all for optimizing. I'm just saying that's, that's a bit the Zoe philosophy is also, you know, we give people these, these diet plans, um, based on their, their results. And we say, listen, it's not about cutting anything out. It's about what are alternatives that are good for you. It's about, like for me, swapping my banana for an apple. Uh, you know, it's something as simple as that. It's, uh, you know, rather than have grapes, uh, you know, have an orange. Um, which, and for, for other people, it might be the complete opposite. So it's not about calories. There's no... We don't talk about calories really in uh, any of the any of the advice we give. I think calories are evil, and really we should be banning them. Uh, it's a way that food companies get to disguise rubbish food. You know, they they can just talk about the calorie, and then you don't actually care what the contents are. So, hundred calorie snack pack. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you don't think calories matter? Within reason, no. I mean, obviously. You know, there's less calories in spinach than there are in uh, French fries, but uh, we all know that. I think, obviously, calories are a fact. I'm not. A, I'm not a calorie denier. <laughs> it's like they yeah. exist, right? Um, but the way they're used so much in marketing and foods and in supermarkets, and we're just confronted: low cal this, low cal that. You know, count your calories. No diets have worked where people count calories. I mean, and if you restrict calories, your body responds by uh, wanting to eat more. And so it's a total fallacy. And we have to start moving away from calories to food quality. And that's the key. Um, You know, a good example is 
came out of the PREDICT studies, we were looking at sugar dips. Most people focus on sugar peaks, but for years, anecdotally, people have been telling me, you know, I get a dip about 10 or 11 in the morning and I feel a bit woozy and then I feel hungry and then I eat something and I'm better. We actually looked and one in four people have these dips, un, generally unknown to, the, to them. So we looked at these and people who are consistently have a sugar dip after a carb breakfast, I end up being significantly hungrier um, and more tired uh, three hours later. And in that day, they will eat uh, an extra 300 calories. And we were giving people identical muffins. Some people got a dip with it, others didn't. Those muffins have identical calories, but have very different effects on two people. And that's really the point of this, is why our fixation with calories is really so wrong. And I think that, that's, that's, that's an amazing insight once you start to realize, so I need to know how I respond. You know, it's, am I gonna have a dip? Am I gonna have a, a, a fat peak later? All these things are going to influence it much more than whether, it, you know, it's exact calories, which you can't measure anyway, which aren't accurate, and your body will uh, metabolize differently. So uh, I think, you know, anyone who's talking about calories as the mainstay of their diet really is missing the point. And it means they're on highly processed food marketed by, you know, junk food companies. And if it says low-cal, Avoid it like the plague because it just means high high chemical. Absolutely. We're, we're with you on that 100%. So these dips and this blood sugar response, I want I have two questions. One, I want to know blood fat. I mean, blood sugar is something we're very familiar with measuring, right? And I think microbiome, this audience probably is to a certain extent too. But I want to talk about the measurement of blood fat. And then I also want to know um, why some people respond to sugar and fat differently than others. I guess I'm curious. Is it because, you know, I grew up on Pop-Tarts and, you know, macaroni and cheese and I've abused my body and now at 37, I can't handle blood sugar? You know, what are the, what what is causing these differences among populations? So fill us in on those two things. Difference between blood sugar and blood fat and also why? Okay, so the blood sugar most people probably know about, insulin, glucose, uh, you know, it goes up after about, 20, 30 minutes, generally you get a peak and you easily measure blood sugar. And it's, it's also uh, a surrogate for insulin levels. And we did measure them both in the PREDICT study, but you know, the sugars are fine for that. And then it generally goes down um, in, uh, after, within, within a couple of hours, it's generally dropped again. Uh, and that's why we're interested in, in the sugar dip at three hours which was longer than anyone had ever looked. And that's why I hadn't seen it. So there are the, these different patterns which might mean something. Um, and so that that's well known. That's what's measured continuously in your glucose monitor. Now, uh, for blood fat, uh, everything happens much slower. So it takes about f- five hours for things to happen in terms of your blood fats because it gets absorbed lower down in the intestine, has to get there, and gets absorbed in the, the small intestine, and then gets into the blood, and then starts to bring up the triglyceride levels, which is the one that we measure is the most responsive immediately. And that's what uh, we measure in our tests. You can measure it in the blood or in a, as a finger spot on, on, a, on a bit of card. And 
what we found is that six hours after your meal, uh, healthy people uh, had got their their fat levels were back to pretty much normal. Okay, so it started to rise three to four hours, and then by six hours, generally they'd be returning to normal and be flushed out of the system. But some people like me uh, and others much worse than me had were still going up at six hours. So this means that the fat was hanging around in, in the blood vessels and the longer it hangs around, the more you get these small particles breaking off and they get embedded in the vessel wall, they cause inflammation. So it, we don't want fat hanging around a long time after meals. And it seems that some people can clear it really fast. Other people can, it, it takes a long time to, to clear it. And the mechanisms for sugar and fat um, are quite different. And we, we didn't, didn't show, you know, some people have thought that they're identical, that you have the same system, but no, they're, they're very different. And some people have a high, good sugar, get rid of sugar quickly. Their insulin's working well, but they can't get rid of fat and vice versa. So why are they different? Uh, no, why do people differ? Um, some of it's genetic in for sugars. So 30% roughly had a genetic component. So you might have some genes. You might have got some diabetic type genes from your parents, and that will have uh, stimulated that. Um, age makes a big effect on it. Um, exercise also changes it. And some people, interestingly, do better if they exercise before meals and some people exercise after meals. We've done some tests on that. That's it. That's really interesting. Uh, and uh, the other factor, of course, is the, the gut microbes, the composition of those through mechanisms we have no clue how it works, but it does on blood sugar. Um, so they're the, they're the main things. As well. There's a bit on sleep as well. So if you've had a good night's sleep, you'll get rid of your sugar quicker. If you've had a, only a few hours or you've been you know up all night partying, you're going to have a, a bigger sugar peak in the morning. Um, so all kinds of things influence these, these peaks and why they're different between people. Then in fat, there was no genetic component at all in fat. That was really strange. So zero genetics. Um, and a bigger component, actually, of the microbes uh, affecting your, how you get rid of fat. And that, for people who understand a bit of the, the biology, that's often the bile salts, um, you know, the gallbladder, all these things are, the chemicals in there are all helped by your microbes to break down the fats. And there are the fat-producing microbes particularly that some people have and others don't we think are important. So uh, that's, and again, we did find to a lesser extent exercise and sleep influence fat. There's still a lot we don't understand uh, why people are different. And we haven't studied enough different um, populations to know, like, you know, do Japanese people digest fat better than Americans? Uh, we, d we don't know that yet. Uh, some differences between sexes uh, as well as age. But again, you know, we're, we're teasing it apart and we're, we're learning more all the time on that. So these the mechanisms that are like contributing to both these is like com completely different almost, it seems, between blood sugar and blood. 
sugars and fats, yes. Um, I mean, obviously, there are some people, to some extent, they're, they're correlated because sometimes if you've got like a tendency to type 2 diabetes or you're very overweight, um, some of the, you will push up uh, your sugar scores and that also um, will impact your, your blood fat levels as well. So many people who are unhealthy will have bad responses to both. So that at a certain level, there's a correlation, but I don't think it's caused by the same mechanisms, if that makes sense. And the blood fat, is that through the, the finger prick test, right? Yes. At the moment, there isn't a, a, a continuous blood fat device. If, if someone wants to invent one, I'd love to take it off your hands because uh, it'd be fantastic to see that. Uh, but I think, you know, that, that's, that's the interesting thing, for, particularly for people who eat a lot of meat might be some of them that are getting a very high uh, fat response after it and others might be absolutely fine. And I think that that's, that's a really interesting element of personalization. And there might be different meats that cause different uh, amounts of fat response as well. Um, and, and it might be also and how you eat the meat, you know, whether you have it with plenty of fiber or not, uh, or whether you have it on its own, might also affect um, those, those uh, fat levels. So I think there's plenty of other research to tease that out um, in this area. I love it. And then you mentioned inflammation. So are you guys, are you determining inflammation through like C-reactive protein or what, what metric is, is the contributing or how are you determining inflammation, I guess? Uh, well, what we, we published this, this paper. So in, in the predict studies, we obviously measured uh, hundreds of different blood tests that we don't not, aren't doing in the commercial product. Um, and we, sh we showed that at six hours, the fat triglyceride level was related to, it was related to uh, something called one of the interleukins, interleukin-6, which is a, a cytokine, but it's very unstable. It's not very useful for, for testing. But we found uh, that an, another sugar called uh, Glyca, which we measured as a package of uh, something called metabolomics, where you measure hundreds of chemicals, was a much more consistent marker of inflammation. And uh, what we found is that rise in triglyceride at six hours was highly correlated with uh, this inflammatory marker. So that's why this is one of the first studies to show that a, a, a sharp rise in fat levels does trigger this uh, inflammation in the body. And that is yet another reason to, to release want to limit uh, fat peaks as well as sugar peaks but we don't we don't routinely measure it in the test but we if you if you get a triglyceride reading you can be pretty sure that's high that that means you're also getting inflammation absolutely okay I have a question this is a personal question I'm just gonna preface it so take it from what it's worth SIBO what do, what do you know about SIBO small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? I know that everyone asks me about it, um, and uh, and mo and uh, there's very little known about it. It's one of the most uh, unusual conditions in the body because it's so hard to study. So it's it's a, one place in the body that's the hardest to get at and see what's going on. It's very hard to uh, work out what the microbes are doing in the small intestine. So this is small intestinal bowel overgrowth for those who don't know what we're talking about. Um, and it's been blamed on all kinds of problems. Um, but I think it's important it's been overblown. 
by alternative practitioners particularly because it's it's an easy thing to blame because you can't really study it to rule things out or rule it in and they the treatments are it are very very hard to know if they work or not there've been things like antibiotic treatments that have had some some benefits others not um i'm a bit skeptical about most of the research in this area just because it is so very hard to do uh and there haven't been really good trials I mean, i i think there are some people who generally do have this problem but many more people who have been told they have it who probably don't and they just have generally uh, poor gut microbiomes uh, interestingly we we have a a paper coming out soon that did look where we in the twins we sampled through biopsies all all parts of their intestines so we got several hundred twins to have colonoscopies and we we looked at everything and there is a general correlation between the microbes they're not the same communities but they correlate and so we think that uh if you want to know what's going on with SIBO rather than have invasive surgery or a wacky test your gut microbes in your lower colon are, are pretty good at uh, giving an idea of what's going on up above. So I think yeah. at the moment, that's my better thing is to say, well, let's just say it's part of the spectrum of people with poor gut health and uh, trying to work out how we can deal with it um, through dietary manipulation rather than uh, just hitting it with antibiotics, which could have lots of other bad effects on the body. Uh, as we know. Yeah, very interesting. So how, besides eating a plant-rich diet, huge diversity, how can we change our microbiome? Or is that the only way? We, we see dramatic effects when people give up ultra-processed foods. And so I think that's uh, the first thing everyone does. I mean, the, the average um, person in the U.S. has 60% of their calories from ultra-processed foods. It's, it, and so that's the first thing really you need to say is, you know, is, is what you're eating uh, a whole food? Uh, you know, we all eat some processed foods. I mean, you know, nobody's, uh, <laughs> uh, nobody's so pure that they don't do that. And I'm all for the occasional treat, but it shouldn't be part of your, your, your daily diet. And so that's the first thing to get rid of. Try and get rid of artificial sweeteners, get rid of, all those chemicals you've never heard of and you wouldn't have in your kitchen. Um, studying whole foods, improve your fiber. Um, you know, we, we need to be getting up towards those hunter-gatherer levels of fiber, which is uh, about 70 grams a day. And most people in the U.S. are about 15. Um, so there's a way to go on that. Um, we've talked about fermented foods. Um Many people may not be keen on that because they've tasted one and they didn't like it or it's, you know, they can be sour tastes. But don't forget that cheese is a pretty good um, fermented food. And again, if you, you go for the artisan varieties rather than the processed ones, you're sure you're getting microbes, nice smelly blue cheese uh, with a rind. You know, you're getting plenty of probiotics in that. Um, and uh, again, you know, pick a rainbow of colors uh, for your foods. And then, of course, we talked briefly on this, but, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of um, experimenting with restricted time eating. And, um, 
you know, the evidence is still mainly in mice, just to be clear. Um, uh, human, large-scale human studies have only shown improvements in metabolism, not in weight. Uh, but I think there could be, I think it's, it could well be personalized. So some people will do well on, on this and others won't. So I, I would certainly tell anyone who hasn't tried it to give it a go and uh, try skipping breakfast is the easiest thing to do uh, a couple of days a week and see how you feel. Generally, you know, the clinical trials show that people who skip breakfast uh, actually lose weight long term rather than uh, gain weight, which is what we were one of the myths we were we were taught uh, at medical school. So I think uh, experiment with ways of eating um, as well as what you put on your plate and, and and rather than focusing on why item, just try and think of it in a more holistic way. So you're looking at all the foods together uh, rather than obsessing about you know, one particular piece. It really is the whole package it, it, that, that's really important. Um, and, and generally go for, you know, high-quality, tasty stuff. Um, you know, eating your food and enjoying it, it uh, and spending more time eating it is also important. All the countries that spend time eating their food, like France, Italy, Spain, uh, Japan, South Korea, are healthier than, you know, Americans and Brits that, race through their meals. Um, and so that, that you know, don't eat in your car, you know, all this other kind of stuff. Uh, you know, food is there to be enjoyed. Uh, and don't just take some snack just because it says high protein on it. Um, it's still ultra-processed rubbish. Um, I think they're, yeah. the, they're, the, they're my life tips. Uh, and, you know, and uh, experiment you know, take advantage of things like the Zoe Zoe test. Get yourself tested, uh, and keep updated with the latest technology and uh, and information. But keep an open mind because it's it's a fast changing field. I think that's the thing. And you know, there isn't one diet as we discussed that's right for every every time in your life. You might have been on it for ten years, but you know, is it still right for you now? We don't know. Yeah. Okay. And what's with the blue poop challenge? This uh, yeah, this came out of the predict study. So. To measure the microbiome correctly, you need to work out uh, how long it takes food to get from one end of the gut to the other because you need to adjust for it. Um, it's complicated why, but that's what you need to do. So we, we gave the participants, 1,000 people, part, we gave them a blue muffin, bright blue muffin with food dye in it and asked them to time when it came out the other end. And uh, it's bright blue because you notice it when it hits the pan. You know, you can't mistake it for anything else. Uh, and we did that and we came up with a surprising fact that it correlated really well with the gut microbes, the health of your gut microbes. So the longer your transit time, uh, the worse in jet on average your gut microbes. So it, it's a sort of cheap home test uh, for people who want to know roughly how their gut microbes are. And it's also... Uh, you know, a sign that you might need to do something because we found the average American had a, a transit time of about 28 to 29 hours. And uh, many, many people were, you know, two to four days. And that is a long time. And we think that we, we think the optimum is somewhere between 10 and 
20 hours. So a lot of people can improve. So you, everyone can go on and go to the uh, either joinzoe.com website or they can go to the, just hashtag Blue Poop Challenge and find that, get some recipes or they can get some muffins sent to them. You do the time yourself and your family uh, and see if you can do you know better than the US average or you're worse. And this is a sign that you need to improve your fiber. You need to change some other things in your diet. And you can take a quiz on the website, which will uh, link you to a, your twin who has exactly the same transit time, uh, same other characteristics, and they've been fully sequenced with the Zoe program. So you can see, well, this is what my microbes might look like. And then, of course, if you're interested, you know, you might then want to follow up and have the full microbiome test um, if you're worried. But I think it's a way of getting Americans to talk about their poop more, uh, not being embarrassed about it, being able to talk to their doctor uh, in ways that they do in France and and uh, uh, Italy. You know, I've worked there and, you know, people are always discussing poo with their doctor, which we, we just don't do that, you know. It's this Anglo-Saxon puritany thing. I don't know. It's, so it's a bit of fun, uh, but it's also got a serious educational message that there's more to your gut than just, you know, having tummy ache or bloating. Um, it gives you an idea of what's going on inside, makes you think more holistically about what you eat. And I think that's hopefully what people will take out of it. And it, it, it's already the biggest uh, sort of citizen science project of its kind you know hundreds of thousands of people i think have have taken it and so the more people can join the more data we'll get you know and work out what that sweet spot is for transit time you know which might differ by sex age you know racial groups all these kind of things and and where you live you know and what your regular diet is so it's fun yeah us americans not we're not naked at the beach. We don't talk about poop. <laughs> There's a big uh, cultural cultural undertone here that we need to pick up on and what Europe's doing right that we are definitely not. Although I myself am a, it's like a joke in our family. We're like, oh, we're 20 minutes into dinner and Morgan hasn't brought up poop. This is a big deal. So I'm very excited to do Blue Poop Challenge. I'm all for it. I think there is a lot to learn from our poop. And I have toddlers, so poop conversation. They love it. They love doing it. Yeah. yeah and <laughs> Kids, they love talking about poop. Yeah. They love talking about poop. There is definitely no lack of that. Um, <laughs> so fascinating. Okay, real quick, I just want everyone to know because I feel like we're talking. This Zoe thing is is just so cool. So I'm I'm even more impressed than I was when I wanted to interview at first because the app is like the. It's like if I don't even know how to describe it. It's like if Apple and Tesla came together to combine a health app, like. It, ta- it guides you through everything so seamlessly. There's day one, day two, you do your poop samples. You get these muffins in the mail. It asks for recent lab work. It just feels like, for me, um, the most comprehensive personalized medical program that's in existence today. Like I don't think there's anyone else doing anything that has as much data input as you guys are doing at Zoe. No. Would you agree? No, I agree 100%. Anyone's doing this holistic approach that realize it isn't just one thing uh and it is this combination of data and it's you know accumulating all this data realizing that it's not it's not simple you know it's not there isn't a simple easy solution 
but it is about gathering the data, giving it back to people. And it's a journey. It's not a one-off thing. So this is a, a journey we want to take together with the sort of people that want to, you know, do these Zoe experiments. Uh, and we, we want to get a long-term relationship uh, with them that is going to, you know, it's going to last years and decades as we improve the product and we try and interact and see what people want out of it as well. And the more people that do it, the more specific the advice, you know, about which particular red meats might be useful or which ones to avoid or, uh, you know, these particular com complex meals, uh, working out how they work. And so it's, it's, a, it's an exciting journey and, and uh, you know, it's going to keep changing. And I think that's, we, you know, we're following the science. We're not just saying this is it. We're stuck for, you know, the next 10 years with this plan. It's continually improving, evolving with, with the data. And it, nearly everyone that signs up also agrees to share their data uh, with us, which, you know, we do in a secure, safe way so we can use everyone's results together to keep pushing the science. So it's, it's, it's great fun, you know, in all, in all respects, really. And, and people who have done it, you know, I mean, some of the things are interesting because we, until we took, until we, because once you've done it, you haven't done this yet, but you'll get your results and then you'll be offered a, a like a, a four week plan to just swap your meals around and see how you get on with this, using your scores. And, you know, virtually everyone is losing some weight, which is great. You know, six pounds is good, but, you know, it's the biggest change is actually people reporting energy levels being uh, higher and uh, reduced appetite. And these things we didn't actually expect. So we're starting to add that into the app to start thinking about, wow, you know, this could be actually, you know, do you pick the foods that give you more energy rather than anything else? Whereas, again, we've been obsessed with weight and calories, but actually there's, there's many other aspects to um, eating, you know, in a personalized way that we, we haven't always considered. So this will give us this data that, you know, will keep pushing that forward. I love it. And Zoe costs how much per month? Uh, the current package is, uh, I think it's about 50, uh, 50 something dollars a month. Um, and which, you know, is usually less than a gym membership and it's, um, less than a Starbucks a day. So it's, it, you know, it, it's definitely less than doing, I mean, I've done levels $200 a month, right? Just for the continuous glucose monitor and the insights there. So to be able to get the continuous glucose monitor plus a microbiome test, plus this personalized recommendation for $59 to me is a steal. I mean, you can't, you can't get that kind of information from any other company for that price. No, and if you went to your physician, it would cost you thousands of dollars, you know, uh, just to get any of these tests done. Uh, and it would be pretty impossible, but <laughs> even if you could. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, we're able to do this because we're doing it at scale. And hopefully these things, it will get cheaper with time the more people use it. And, um, you know, we're doing everything to, to, to try and involve as many people as possible. So we don't want to uh, keep this as an expensive product. Uh, we want millions of people to be using this, and that, that's that's the. All right, I have a few rapid 
rapid fire questions for you. I know we're kind of running out of time here, but real quick before we get into that two minutes on the COVID study, you've done um, some, explain just like 60 seconds on it and what your biggest takeaways have been for those folks. And I also want to know how the symptoms are changing in light of new variants, the new variants everyone's obsessed with. So yeah, fill us in. Okay. Tough in two minutes, but um, okay. Uh, 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 so basically, back in March last year, uh, they closed down my university, a hospital, and I got in touch with Zoe to say, could we convert the uh, nutrition app team to working on the COVID project? And so the same team that developed the Zoe app for nutrition in five days came up with a COVID app for symptoms. And uh, it was an amazing success through the social media and we eventually got four and a half million people to download and use the app. And, and real quick, even now, people in 24 hours to sign up for this app. Is that correct? Yeah. How on earth did you? It was. It went. Well, people just what? I don't know if you remember back then, but I mean, oh, I do. You know, the government were governments were useless. No one was helping anyone. Right. You were told not to call your doctor. This is an emergency. Stay at home. Lock your door. And so it, people just said, I can help, you know, because we were telling people, give us your symptoms. Tell us what's going on. You know, have you had a test? Are you ill? And people just said, this is fantastic. You know, it was the first day of lockdown in the UK. And and it was just after in the US when we launched it. We did it a week later in the US. And um, people just loved the idea of participating, doing something, feeling they were part of a community and getting data back. And so that's really what drove it and why it's still, you know, the biggest uh, project of its kind, you know, nearly 18 months on. So I think it's been work real and it's helped us realize how to interact with the public in a way and really listen to them. And, you know, people are sick of just putting data in and not getting feedback. Uh, and so that's really the core of what the COVID app is, giving the, the users of the app the latest data on what's happening in their area, et cetera. Um, we also did a huge study, about a million people did a, we were able to do a study of a million people in a week, right? Incredible, on diet. And uh, that told us that the quality of your diet has a huge impact on whether you get severe COVID or not. And again, uh, it's true in the US population as well as the UK. So, you know, as well as obesity and diabetes being problems, diet quality, and that probably explains some of these inequalities in health. Um, but again, another focus about, you know, if you want to get your vaccine to work and all this thing, you know, diet quality is really crucial now more than ever because the microbes have this huge effect on your immune system. Um, and finally, the big thing we've done is discover new symptoms. So we were the first really big study to show that loss of smell was part of COVID, loss of taste, um, delirium in the elderly, uh, that kids had different symptoms. And currently we're, uh, we're showing that uh, with people with vaccinations, um, they're getting cold-like symptoms. So we're not seeing the same symptoms as we did. Uh, you know, People in the UK and the US now are getting reinfected, even with vaccines, but don't expect the classical symptoms. You, you're going to get sneezing, headaches, sore throat, um, uh, and you're not going to get you know, shortness of breath, fever, uh, uh, as you were before. So it's it's like a 
flu-like illness. And we can't at the moment, it's quite hard for us to separate out Delta and Alpha. Um, but we do know that Delta is affecting uh, the vaccines more. So it, you're getting more breakthrough with uh, the, the vaccines than you were with uh, the early versions. So, you know, unfortunately, COVID's going to be with us for another couple of years. And uh, we've got to learn to live with it and, you know, uh, accept it, do everything we can, exercise and, and good food and um, looking after our bodies to make sure that we don't get it too badly. They're, they're, sure. they're the, that's the, the two-minute version. I love it. I did read <laughs> it. We have a website if you want to go to it. You know, uh, they can look at all the COVID stuff and our, our latest uh, stuff and, and uh, you know, uh, log on. Yeah, I did recently, someone was mentioning that if some obscene proportion of people who are hospitalized or have died, it's like a function. It, it's very in line with their metabolic health. So these things that, you know, your response to blood sugar and weight and diabetes and all that is definitely coming into play, as we know. Um, so Yeah, well that, well, that was known. But yeah, I think the fact that the quality of your diet, independent of, of whether you're overweight or have diabetes is also really important. And so that's probably why the U.S. has had more problems than most other countries, uh, because uh, not only is an obese population, but also, uh, you know, a junk food population. Yeah. And so when you say quality, and quality of the diet, meaning what? Like the, all the things we talked about before, like diverse microbiome, would that be synonymous with high quality diet? Yeah, it's. Avoidance it's just processed it, crap. Yeah, it's it's everything that's not made from, you know, original ingredients. It's everything that's made from products of other products of other products and stuck together. And you get your combined thing, which they add sugar and salt and uh, various stimulants to make you overeat it. And all these chemicals together, generally low in fiber, low in polyphenols, low in anything that's good for your microbes. And... It's also snacking, you know, average American has six or seven meals a day. You know, uh, that's also not good. And if you hit your mic, that's probably bad for your gut microbes, and that's bad for your immune system. So I think it's it, – it, COVID has really brought things, lifestyle, into focus again in a, in a big way. Uh, and hopefully you know, it, there will be some wake-up call once once we get over it. Okay, who's inspiring you these days, and what are you most excited about in health and wellness? Uh, I'm inspired by so, so many people, um, really all the scientists that I work with uh, at Zoe, because um, the nice thing about having uh, things like the PREDICT studies is that every everyone around the world wants to join us. So we have the best sleep experts, uh, you know, um, Matt Walker joining us. We have... Uh, you know, collaborations with the, the restricted time eating people, uh, Sash and Panda. Um, um, I like the amazing things that um, uh, the, the microbiome guys are doing, sorting out our microbes, um, big team and uh, at Harvard doing that. So I'm just, I'm just always inspired by all these, these, these other experts around us. And I think, I still think the biggest thing in health and wellness at the moment is is this combination of uh, I think it's the gut microbes and personalization really. Uh, I think 
you know, the gut microbes are like discovering a new organ in our bodies. And so all the specialties really need to feed into that. And it's a bit like rediscovering, you know, um, ancient, you know, Odevic medicine, you know, which they all said was focused on the gut, but no one knew why. And, and now, now we know why. Very interesting. Is there any like probiotic technology or anything that's cool coming there that we should know about? Uh, well, they can put probiotics in nearly everything now. You can get probiotic chocolate. Um, you can get, uh, yeah, they're, they're putting probiotic beer. I've seen someone uh, looking at. Uh, <laughs> you can. Uh, um, and I was asked, interesting because people are, uh, there's 70 companies making uh, laboratory meat now, um, stem cell meat. And uh, some of them contacted me about, adding pre and probiotics to that laboratory meat to make it healthier. So I think these are, and these are going to be on our plates within five years. So there's going to be massive, massive changes in, in what we eat in the next five years. So um, yeah, I think that's kind of cool that, you know, a stem cell burger cost $300,000 um, about uh, 10 years ago. And uh, you can buy a chicken stem cell burger in, in Singapore now for 25 bucks. Yeah. So what do you think about this fake meat trend? Well, um, it's fantastic for the planet. Uh, it's not going to be so good for our taste buds. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, biologically, it's going to be uh, equivalent. And so... I think it could fill the gap in the really rubbish processed meats that at the moment, you know, I, I think shouldn't be eaten, but so you're uh, talking, are. Yeah, like because there's like the soy-based fake meat products that have like 60 ingredients in them. You're talking stem cell meat that's grown to replace. Yeah, so I would, yes, so they're, they're two separate things, but yeah, I'm so I'm actually all for stem cell meat that could replace replace, you know, cheap sausages and mints and things like that, that you wouldn't notice, right? So, yeah. Um, and that's good. That's going to be fantastic for the planet uh, and global warming. Um, the other thing you know, about, you know, Impossible Burgers and, and uh, Beyond Meat and these things, um, uh, I think w I do worry that they do have a lot of ingredients that might not be health, uh, healthy for you. But uh, I don't think they're any worse than the current equivalents. Um, and they definitely are better, again, for the planet. And I think the other thing is they are educating people. There are, in a way, different ways to, uh, you know, think about food. And so it's broadening people's ideas. They don't have to be so rigid. And we don't, you know, because it's, it's simply impossible to keep eating the same amount of meat in the next generation as we have been. And I think that that so as an educational mindset, I think um, it, it's an important one. I, you know, I, but I have reservations about all the all the other stuff they put in to make it taste more like meat. I wish they would just uh, not make it taste quite as meat and just have it its own product. But there you go. Yeah, I know. I look at some of that and I just call it like Franken food. I'm like, this is ridiculous. There's like six ingredients in here. I can't pronounce 58 of them. Like, I mean, hmm. how, I don't know. How could this be better than a grass-fed filet mignon i'm not tracking but you know yeah well then they never will be better than the best quality meats 
Right. Um, they, they might be better than the worst quality meats. So. <laughs> I like that approach. Okay. Um, let's see. Three quick ones. What's your biggest failure to date? Because you seem like you got it figured out, man. You've done this like incredible twin study. You're a co-founder of this amazing company that is going to explode. I'm sure of it. Are there any failures we have in the life of Dr. Tim Spector? Oh, plenty of failures, yes. Um, well, uh, academics are always failing, you know, and that's part of the job is to fail to get big grants. Uh, I've, I failed to, I, I worked in epigenetics for five years and failed to make any major discoveries there. And that's why I shifted. So, you know, you need failures to kick you out and, and, and do something else. Um, uh, I, because uh, I get bored easily. So I, I I need these things. Um, I, I, f- I fail. I fail. Life as a politician. So, some of the things in COVID, I failed to convince, you know, governments to do things that if I was better at, if I was less blunt, I would have done well. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I, uh, but you know, I think life is full of successes and failures, and um, several companies I've started have, have you know. Have bombed as well. So um, you, if you don't fail, you don't succeed. Is my is my view. So uh, okay. What's one thing most people don't know about you? So I had a helicopter crash four four years ago, which was um, exciting. Really? Yeah, I was I was skiing in. in were you flying a helicopter or you were a passenger? Uh, I was a passenger in a helicopter, and we crashed whilst we were heli skiing on landing, and it, it exploded and blew up. But. Um, what? Yeah, so that was, um, and that, in a way, it made me uh, realize, you know, life is precious, and so you've got to get on and and do stuff and enjoy it. And so that was um, a, a major turning point in my my face. So rather than just settle down and retire and you know play golf, yeah. uh, I I uh, I said I'm gonna do stuff I'm really passionate about, enjoy it, and um, you know it actually was a pretty good event for me really <laughs> i felt so lucky to have to have escaped and lived yeah. because generally it's about 50 50 if it crashes you know it's so fragile you uh, but the snow was soft and uh, it uh, we all we all got out alive so this helicopter crashed and you guys all went running and then it exploded after you got out of the way or what happened here no it was we were we were, they were dropping us on the first landing and uh uh, the pilot made a mistake and uh, it uh, it flipped over and uh, and crashed down and then the the blades kept going round and it caught fire and yeah it was uh, Holy smokes this yeah. is crazy yeah. but a life changing event it sounds like you took it as best as you could and used it as a pivot for positive change. yeah I w- I was bizarrely calm. Um, and I even took a video of it, you know, which everyone said everyone else was running away in case it totally exploded whilst we were near it. But um, uh, I had a strange, calm feeling. It was very weird, which was actually not. I wonder if that's a result of your diverse microbiome. You were able to have that gut brain connection well, <laughs> and keep your cool. Yeah, but some others would have said it was stupid. You should have run for cover. You know, it was not. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Just, you know, just thinking my social true. media too much. I was just being, uh, you know. <laughs> I love it. Uh, 
Because I said no one will believe me. No one will believe me if I don't take a picture of it. So oh, wow. Yeah, I would not have guessed that one. That's a good one. I've asked quite a few of those questions, and that's an impressive one. Well, thank you so much. I won't take up any more of your time because I know you need to get back to changing the world through this uh, diverse microbiome mission. But we're so happy to spend time with you today. Um, I just want to remind everyone you can try the Blue Poop Challenge for yourself. Check out joinzoe.com. Um, Tim's book, The Diet Myth, is also available on Amazon uh, if you aren't ready to examine your poop just yet. Um, and like I said, I've tried pretty much everything in the per- personalized health world, and I think this Zoe app is a phenomenal way to bring all of these technologies into your living room and really um, use it as effective change. So I highly encourage you guys to check it out. Um, thanks, everyone. Thank you, Tim. And we'll talk soon. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye, guys.